Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 3, 1878-79, Demons and Riots. After the impressive performances by the Australians in the 1876-77 season, the prospects of a tour by the Colonials began to be seen as something that will be well received by the English, especially in regards to its potential profitability. Both Lily White and W.G. Grace offered to sponsor the tour, however the leading Australian players managed to raise the money to fund the tour themselves, although Lily White was able to assist with the scheduling of matches. Of the 12 players who made the trip, Dave Gregory, Charles Bannerman, Horan, Spotheth, Murdoch, Blackham, Midwinter and Garrett had participated in the combined matches the previous summer. They were joined by Charles's younger brother Alec, bowlers Frank Allen, who had declined to participate in the first test matches, and Harry Boyle, as well as Tasmanian George Herbert Bailey, who replaced fellow Tasmanian John Arthur, who had passed away two days after receiving his invitation to join the tour. Each player contributed £50 to the running of the tour, but will receive a share of the profits made. There was some surprise at the omission of Tom Kendall from the touring party, given his success in the test matches where he had been the leading wicket-taker and a decisive bowler in the Australian victory in the first test. He had participated in the tour warm-up matches and performed well, However, Gregory was concerned about his heavy drinking and his lack of discipline, leading to his dismissal from the tour. Kendall's test career was over, and he would only sporadically play first-class cricket again, a common story in the early days of test cricket, even with the best performers. Nat Thompson was invited, but couldn't afford the £50 signing fee. The players travelled to England by steamship, stopping in North America before disembarking in Liverpool. Midwinter was already in England playing for Gloucestershire and had joined the team as they headed to Nottinghamshire to prepare for the matches. 37 had been arranged by Lillywhite, many against local teams who had up to 22 players participating. However, due to divisions amongst English cricket with regard to amateurs and professionals, they would not face a side that would be considered representative of England. Subsequently, none of the matches on this tour would retrospectively be classed as test matches when those distinctions began to be made. In the first match against Nottinghamshire, the draw of the Australians meant it was one of the largest attendances in the history of Trent Bridge to that time, with 10,000 attending on the second day. Crowds had earlier mobbed the players at the station and lined the streets as they headed to the ground, to the big newsman of the Australians. Despite the hype, the Australians lost the match by an innings and 14 runs, mainly due to their long voyage and the alien pitch and weather conditions compared to back home. They were much more excited about their 80% share of the gate takings, a substantial sum given the large crowd in attendance. The second match of the tour was against a strong MCC 11 at Lords. This side was captained by WG Grace, universally considered the best player in the world. They also had Alfred Shaw, who had toured Australia the previous year and was considered the finest bowler in England. Given their first up performance, not much was expected of the tourists. Blackham did not play in this match, with Murdoch keeping wicket. Grace won the toss and chose to bat. Left armer Frank Allen delivered the first ball to WG, who hit the ball to square leg for an all-run four. The next ball, Midwinter snuck around to catch Grace at the same location, his experience playing with the doctor at Gloucestershire giving him an advantage at knowing the strengths and weaknesses of his batting style. Harry Boyle then took the wicket of Booth for a duck, bringing Ridley in to join Hornby. They progressed the score to 27 before an extraordinary collapse of 8 for 6 occurred. The biggest impact was wrought by Spoffer, who took 6 wickets, including a hat-trick. Boyle contributed 3 as well. The MCC's score of 33 was only just bettered by the Australians' 41, which took 66 overs to make. Midwinter's top scored with 10, while Shaw and Fred Morley each took 5 wickets. The MCC now had an opportunity to put on a big lead, however this didn't reckon with Spoffer and Boyle. Spoffer lived up to his reputation by bowling Grace for a duck. Between Spoffer, who took 6 to finish with 12 for the match, 
and Boyle, who took four seconds innings wickets, the Australians managed to dismiss the MCC for only 19 in 17 overs. This left the Australians with a target of 12, which they managed with only one wicket down. The match, which had begun at midday, had been completed by 5.45pm on the same day. The match caused a sensation. Spofford became known as the Demon, whilst Boyle was now referred to as the Very Devil. The match aggregate of 105 is still the lowest for a completed first-class match. It has been referred to as the most significant six hours in cricket history, whilst the local London satirical paper Punch published the following verse inspired by the match. The Australians came down like a wolf on the fold. The Marleybone cracks for a trifle were bold. Our grace before dinner was very soon done, and grace after dinner did not get a run. According to John Lazenby in his 2015 book, The Strangers Who Came Home, regarding the tour, the MCC result was of such an impact that a cannon shell had it landed on the square could not have rocked the foundations of the home of English cricket with any more force. The result made the touring Australians a box office sensation, with thousands turning out around the country to see them in their games. Players like Spothoff, Boyle, Charles Bannerman and Blackham became household names given their exploits. Bannerman hit the first 100 by an Australian in England, a dashing 133 against Leicestershire. Spothoff lived up to his nickname with outstanding displays of fast bowling. Boyle backed up his bowling with almost suicidal fielding, standing close to the wicket to catch edges drawn by Spothoff's off-breaks. Blackham was regarded without peer as a wicketkeeper. His ability to take stumpings off the fast was a bowling a particular highlight. The Australians traversed the country, being banqueted on numerous occasions and playing a variety of local teams, performing admirably, winning more games than they lost. A scandal erupted in June. The Australians were set to take on Middlesex at Lords, while Surrey were hosting Gloucestershire, the team of the Grace brothers across town at the Oval. WG Grace turned up to the Australian camp and kidnapped Billy Midwinter, who had played for Gloucestershire the previous year. Grace argued that Midwinter was under contract to play, and after much dispute, Midwinter ended up playing for Gloucestershire. As we can see, the English tradition of acquiring players from other countries has long roots. The acquisition of Midwinter did not prevent a loss to Surrey, whilst the Australians were able to still defeat Middlesex. The Australians completed their tour, which would last well into September with only 11 men. They achieved some revenge by beating Grace's Gloucestershire by 10 wickets towards the end of the tour, although Midwinter didn't play in this match. On their journey home, the Australians stopped in Philadelphia to play a further series of games before returning to Australia. They finally docked in Sydney on the 25th of November, having been away for eight months. For their £50 investment, the players each received over £1,000 as a return, quite a large sum in those days. A cheering crowd of 20,000 greeted the players, with the Colonials having followed their exploits in the local newspapers. The tour was seen as another step forward towards creating a national identity, where a team of local players had returned to the mother country and shown them up at their own game. The success of the Australians saw plans for the English to arrange a return tour. Lillywhite considered running it again in conjunction with Alfred Shaw. However, when they learned that the MCC had asked Lord Harris, one of the leading amateur cricketers of his day, to organise a tour on their behalf, they withdrew. Lord Harris put together a mostly amateur side as opposed to the professionals who had toured with Lily White, although in order to strengthen the bowling, they included Ulyett and Emmett, who had been on the previous tour. Originally, the captaincy was offered to Alfred Monkey Hornby, a man who had the distinction of later captaining England in both cricket and rugby, but he deferred to the rank of Lord Harris. The team arrived in Australia soon after the return of the Australian touring side. As well as numerous minor matches around the country, the English would play two first-class games against both Victoria and New South Wales, as well as a return combined match like had occurred on Lily White's tour. This match would later go down as the third test in history. Again, the match was scheduled to take place in Melbourne, this time to begin shortly after the new year. The Australian side is made up of most of the players who returned from the 1878 tour, save for Bailey who had broken his arm in the match in November. His place was taken by Thomas Kelly, who had played in the second test match. 
Again, the side will be led by the inaugural captain of the Australians, Dave Gregory. David William Gregory was born on the 15th of April, 1845. Unlike many of his contemporaries in the Australian side, he had been born in the colonies, coming from Wollongong in New South Wales. He came from a cricketing family, with three of his brothers playing for their state side, including older brother Ned, who would join Dave in playing in the first test match. Three of his nephews would go on to play for New South Wales as well, including test cricketers Sid and Jack. His nieces were also pioneers of women's cricket in Australia, with three of them appearing for New South Wales in the first women's interstate match against Victoria in 1910. First appearing for New South Wales as a right-handed middle-order batsman in 1866, he would go on to play 38 first-class matches with a top score of 85. It was as a leader that he would establish himself, though, and was chosen to captain the first combined side against Lily White's 11, and then on the tour that followed, where he demonstrated his abilities as a tactful leader, even his batting performances did not reach any great heights. Gregory did not maintain his perfect record at the toss, after which Lord Harris chose to bat. It was apparently a difficult decision, given rain had fallen on the uncovered pitch earlier in the day. The English opened with Ulliot and Bunny Lucas. Ulliot, who had been the key batsman in the successful fourth inning chase in the second test on the last tour, was bowled by Spotheth on the second ball of the match. This dismissal would set the tone for the rest of the English innings. Allen, playing his only test match, bowled Lucas and a number three Webb before Spotheth claimed Hornby. 4 for 14 soon became 7 for 26, as Spotheth became the first bowler to take a test hat trick, bowling Royal and McKinnon before having Emmett caught by Horan. Spotheth had already taken his, the first five wicket haul of his test career, and a repeat of the MCC match from the 1878 tour looked on the cards. Lord Harris had watched the carnage from the other end. Finally, at the fall of the seventh wicket, a substantial partnership developed as he was joined by Absalom. Taking advantage of some loose bowling from Allen and Garrett, they managed to push the score on to 88 before Garrett managed to bowl Harris for 33. Absalom managed to continue to hit out in partnership with the wicketkeeper Hone, bringing up his half-century before Boyle bowled him, claiming his first test wicket for 52. Spofforth returned to claim the final wicket without another run added to end the English innings on 113. Spofforth had claimed the figures of 6 for 48, including the hat-trick. Charles Bannerman and Murdoch commenced the innings for Australia. The score moved to 16 before Murdoch was caught off Ulliot. Horan joined Bannerman, who was playing remarkably well, until he played a ball onto his leg stump off Emmett, being dismissed for 15. Horan was then dismissed for 10 with the score at 37. This brought Spotheth to the crease to join Alec Bannerman, who was playing his maiden test innings. Bannerman, who would later be known for his stonewalling style of batting, progressed in partnership with Spotheth, taking the strains to the end of the day with a score on 95. Spotheth ended the day on 35, having followed up his hat-trick earlier in the day with a hat-trick of fours off Lucas. He was dropped on 15 by Ulliot, but otherwise gave no chances. Around 7,000 people had witnessed the day's play. The Australians returned the next day looking to build a first innings lead, whilst according to the newspaper reports, the English could only hope to avoid a crushing defeat. Up to 7,000 spectators flocked to the ground as Spotheth and Bannerman resumed the Australians' innings. Spotheth was out shortly, caught off Emmett for 39, having enjoyed a 64-run partnership with Bannerman. Garrett joined the set batsman, and the pair took the Australians past the English score, progressing until Garrett was out for a quickly made 26 with a score on 131, although he disputed the dismissal, believing he had not touched the ball that the keeper claimed as a catch. Allen came and went quickly, but Harry Boyle scored 28 in a partnership of 57 with Bannerman. Bannerman continued on until he was the last man out for 73, with a score on 256, a lead of 143 runs. Dave Gregory, batting at 11 due to having a cold, was not out 12. Tom Emmett finished with figures of 7 for 68 off 59 overs. Along with Ulliot, who had bowled 62, they had delivered the vast majority of the overs, reflecting the lack of bowling class amongst the mostly amateur side. Amongst the commencement of the English innings, Ulliot and Lucas took the score along to 26 before Allen struck, having Lucas caught for 13. 
Three more wickets, two from Spotheth and one from Allen, were then taken quickly to leave the English at 4th 34 and in danger of an innings defeat. As in the first innings, however, Lord Harris handled the bowling the best, building partnerships with Royal and McKinnon to take the score along to 103 until just before the close of play where Spotheth managed to hit the shoulder of his bat and Horing taking the catch at long stop. This brought the day to an end with England six wickets down and still trailing by 42 runs. Spotheth added three wickets to the six he had taken in the first innings. As the game commenced on the Saturday, only 1,000 people were in attendance, mainly due to the almost certainty of the result. In the first over, Spotheth completed his 10-wicket match by bowling McKinnon for five. Spotheth then took the wickets of Absalom and home. With a score at 9 for 128, the English still required 17 runs to make the Australians bat again. However, the last wicket partnership of 32 between Emmett and Schultz took the English past the Australian score. Fittingly, it was Spofford who claimed the last wicket to finish with 7 for 62 for the innings and 13 for 110 for the match. The feats of Spofford and the support from Alan, Garrett and Boyle demonstrate the superior depth and quality of the Australians' bowling, which played a key part in deciding the match. With only 18 required, Charles Bannerman and Billy Murdoch chased down the runs in only three overs. Bannerman hit the winning runs in what would be his final act as an Australian player. The English continued with the tour, heading to New South Wales to play local sides before meeting the New South Wales team at the Sydney Cricket Ground in two first-class games. The first game was won by the Colonials by five wickets. The second game, starting in February, was highly anticipated. Up to 10,000 spectators were present for the first day's play. Harris's side had started well by posting 262, with New South Wales ending the day at 253. After the fall of future Australian player Hugh Massey for 38, New South Wales collapsed to be all out for 177. Test player Billy Murdoch had carried his bat for 82 not out. This total was not within the follow-on target of the time, so New South Wales were asked to bat again. In this era, umpires were supplied by the teams themselves, with each side providing one. Harris decided being using Victorian and future Test player George Coulthard as their umpire. Local newspapers had criticised some of his decision-making on the first day of the match, and the crowd's ire was raised. As the New South Wales follow-on progressed, Murdoch was judged run out by Coulthard for 10. At this decision, the crowd began to complain. Many were inveterate gamblers and were concerned that the decision had been rigged. No new batsmen appeared from the Australian dressing room, so Harris went to speak with Dave Gregory, the New South Wales captain. Gregory refused to continue to play whilst Coulthard was umpiring and demanded that he be replaced. Harris refused. As this exchange was happening, members of the crowd invaded the field making for Coulthard, with one hitting him across the back with a stick. Harris rushed out to defend the umpire, whilst other members of the English team had to use the stumps to defend themselves. Monkey Hornby had his shirt ripped off and had to be protected from the crowd. Once the mob was clear, Gregory still refused to continue the match. Harris had to get the other umpire, future First Australian Prime Minister Edmund Barton, to convince Gregory to resume. When the New South Wales batsmen finally returned to the crease, the crowd invaded again, staying until the close of play. They hoped to get the English side to forfeit, however Harris stood firm. Upon their return the next day, Harris's side quickly wrapped up in innings victory. The two would continue with the English winning one and losing one of their games against Victoria, one of which included the star of the 1868 Indigenous tour, Johnny Muller, in what would be his only first-class match. Harris, however, refused a return match against a combined Australian side that would have been played in Sydney and complained in the London press about the conduct of the Australians. Due to the importance of Lord Harris in English cricket, this bad blood would impact the prestige of the next Australian tour of England in 1880. However, the success of the Australians in the only test match of the 1878-79 tour had demonstrated that their victory in the first match was no fluke. By performing so well in England, they had also demonstrated that the Colonials were a worthy match for the mother country and deserving of more high-profile matches. The 1878-79 game was also important as it was the last playing role of two of the key figures of the first test matches. 
Charles Bannerman would never play for Australia again, mainly due to ill health and gambling issues. He did later act as an umpire in 12 tests. Dave Gregory continued to play for New South Wales until 1883, then served as secretary of the New South Wales Cricket Association. Both men, although they each only played three tests, have provided great service in establishing the games as worthy of merit and of increasing importance to both Australian and English sporting culture. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.